Chapter Twenty Eight B of the Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser, Chapter Twenty Eight B, The Killing of the Tree Spirit, Three, Carrying Out Death. The ceremony of carrying out death presents much the same features as burying the carnival, except that the carrying out of death is generally followed by a ceremony, or at least accompanied by a profession, of bringing in summer, spring, or life. Thus, in Middle Franken, a province of Bavaria, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, the village urchins used to make a straw effigy of death, which they carried about with burlesque pomp through the streets, and afterwards burnt with loud cries beyond the bounds. The Frankish custom is thus described by a writer of the sixteenth century. At mid-Lent, the season when the church bids us rejoice, the young people of my native country make a straw image of death, and fastening it to a pole, carry it with shouts to the neighbouring villages. By some they are kindly received, and after being refreshed with milk, peas, and dried pears, the usual food of that season, are sent home again. Others, however, treat them with anything but hospitality, for, looking on them as harbingers of misfortune, to wit of death, they drive them from their boundaries with weapons and insults. In the villages near Erlangen, when the fourth Sunday in Lent came round, the peasant girls used to dress themselves in all their finery with flowers in their hair. Thus attired, they repaired to the neighbouring town, carrying puppets which were adorned with leaves and covered with white cloths. These they took from house to house in pairs, stopping at every door where they expected to receive something, and singing a few lines in which they announced that it was mid-Lent, and that they were about to throw death into the water. When they had collected some trifling gratuities, they went to the river Regnitz, and flung the puppets representing death into the stream. This was done to ensure a fruitful and prosperous year. Further, it was considered a safeguard against pestilence and sudden death. At Nuremberg, girls of seven to eighteen years of age go through the streets bearing a little open coffin, in which is a doll hidden under a shroud. Others carry a beech branch with an apple fastened to it for a head in an open box. They sing, We carry death into the water, it is well, or We carry death into the water, carry him in and out again. In some parts of Bavaria, down to 1780, it was believed that a fatal epidemic would ensue if the custom of carrying out death were not observed. In some villages of Thuringen, on the fourth Sunday of Lent, the children used to carry a puppet of birchen twigs through the village, and then threw it into a pool, while they sang, We carry the old death out behind the herdsman's old house. We have got summer, and Croden's power is destroyed. At Debschwitz, or Dobschwitz, near Gera, the ceremony of driving out death is, or was, annually observed on the 1st of March. The young people make up a figure of straw or the like materials, dress it in old clothes, which they have begged from houses in the village, and carry it out and throw it into the river. On returning to the village, they break the good news to the people, and receive eggs and other victuals as a reward. The ceremony is, or was supposed, to purify the village, and to protect the inhabitants from sickness and plague. In other villages of Thuringen, in which the population was originally Slavonic, the carrying out of the puppet is accompanied with the singing of a song, which begins, Now we carry death out of the village, and spring into the village. At the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, the custom was observed in Thuringen as follows. The boys and girls made an effigy of straw or the like materials, but the shape of the figure varied from year to year. In one year it would represent an old man, in the next an old woman, in the third a young man, and in the fourth a maiden, 
and the dress of the figure varied with the character it personated. There used to be a sharp contest as to where the effigy was to be made, for the people thought that the house from which it was carried forth would not be visited with death that year. Having been made, the puppet was fastened to a pole, and carried by a girl, if it represented an old man, but by a boy, if it represented an old woman. Thus it was borne in procession, the young people holding sticks in their hands, and singing that they were driving out death. When they came to water, they threw the effigy into it, and ran hastily back, fearing that it might jump on their shoulders and wring their necks. They also took care not to touch it, lest it should dry them up. On their return they beat the cattle with the sticks, believing that this would make the animals fat or fruitful. Afterwards they visited the house or houses from which they had carried the image of death, where they received a dole of half-boiled peas. The custom of carrying out death was practised also in Saxony. At Leipzig, the bastards and public women used to make a straw effigy of death every year at mid-Lent. This they carried through all the streets with songs, and showed it to the young married women. Finally they threw it into the river Parte. By this ceremony they professed to make the young wives fruitful, to purify the city, and to protect the inhabitants for that year from plague and other epidemics. Ceremonies of the same sort are observed at mid-Lent in Silesia. Thus in many places the grown girls, with the help of the young men, dress up a straw figure with women's clothes, and carry it out of the village towards the setting sun. At the boundary they strip it of its clothes, tear it in pieces, and scatter the fragments about the fields. This is called burying death. As they carry the image out, they sing that they are about to bury death under an oak, that he may depart from the people. Sometimes the song runs that they are bearing death over the hill and dale to return no more. In the Polish neighbourhood of Grosstrelitz, the puppet is called Goik. It is carried on horseback and thrown into the nearest water. The people think that the ceremony protects them from sickness of every sort in the coming year. In the districts of Volau and Gurau, the image of death used to be thrown over the boundary of the next village. But as the neighbours feared to receive the ill-omened figure, they were on the lookout to repel it, and hard knocks were often exchanged between the two parties. In some Polish parts of Upper Silesia, the effigy, representing an old woman, goes by the name of Marzana, the goddess of death. It is made in the house where the last death occurred, and is carried on a pole to the boundary of the village, where it is thrown into a pond, or burnt. At Polkwitz, the custom of carrying out death fell into abeyance, but an outbreak of fatal sickness which followed the intermission of the ceremony induced the people to resume it. In Bohemia the children go out with a straw man representing death to the end of the village where they burn it, singing, Now carry we death out of the village, the new summer into the village. Welcome, dear summer, green little corn. At Tabor in Bohemia the figure of death is carried out of the town and flung from a high rock into the water, while they sing, Death swims on the water, summer will soon be here, we carried death away for you, we brought the summer, and do thou, O holy Marquetta, give us a good year, for wheat and for rye. In other parts of Bohemia they carry death to the end of the village, singing, We carry death out of the village, and the new year into the village, Dear spring, we bid you welcome, green grass, we bid you welcome. Behind the village they erect a pyre, on which they burn the straw figure, reviling and scoffing at it the while. Then they return, singing, We have carried away death and brought life back. He has taken up his quarters in the village. Therefore sing joyous songs. In some German villages of Moravia, as in Jasnitz and Zeitendorf, the young folk assemble on the third Sunday in Lent, and fashion a straw man, who is generally adorned with a fur cap and a pair of old leathern hose, if such are to be had. The effigy is then hoisted on a pole, and carried by the lads and lasses out into the open fields. 
On the way they sing a song, in which it is said that they are carrying death away, and bringing dear summer into the house, and with summer the may and the flowers. On reaching an appointed place, they dance in a circle round the effigy, with loud shouts and screams, then suddenly rush at it, and tear it to pieces with their hands. Lastly, the pieces are thrown together in a heap, the pole is broken, and fire is set to the hole. While it burns, the troop dances merrily round it, rejoicing at the victory won by spring, and when the fire has nearly died out, they go to the householders to beg for a present of eggs, wherewith to hold a feast, taking care to give as a reason for the request that they have carried death out and away. The preceding evidence shows that the effigy of death is often regarded with fear and treated with marks of hatred and abhorrence. Thus the anxiety of the villagers to transfer the figure from their own to their neighbour's land, and the reluctance of the latter to receive the ominous guest, are proof enough of the dread which it inspires. Further, in Lusatia and Silesia, the puppet is sometimes made to look in at the window of a house, and it is believed that someone in the house will die within the year unless his life is redeemed by the payment of money. Again, after throwing the effigy away, the bearers sometimes run home lest death should follow them, and if one of them falls in running, it is believed that he will die within the year. At Chrudim, in Bohemia, a figure of death is made out of a cross, with a head and mask stuck at the top, and a shirt stretched out on it. On the fifth Sunday in Lent, the boys take this effigy to the nearest brook or pool, and standing in a line, throw it into the water. Then they all plunge in after it, but as soon as it is caught, no one more may enter the water. The boy who did not enter the water, or entered it last, will die within the year, and he is obliged to carry the death back to the village. The effigy is then burnt. On the other hand, it is believed that no one will die within the year, in the house out of which the figure of death has been carried and the village out of which death has been driven is sometimes supposed to be protected against sickness and plague. In some villages of Austrian Silesia, on the Saturday before Dead Sunday, an effigy is made of old clothes, hay and straw, for the purpose of driving death out of the village. On Sunday the people, armed with sticks and straps, assemble before the house where the figure is lodged. Four lads then draw the effigy by cords through the village amid exultant shouts, while all the others beat it with their sticks and straps. On reaching a field which belongs to a neighbouring village, they lay down the figure, cudgel it soundly, and scatter the fragments over the field. The people believe that the village from which death has been thus carried out will be safe from any infectious disease for the whole year. 4 bringing in summer. In the preceding ceremonies, the return of spring, summer, or life, as a sequel to the expulsion of death, is only implied, or at most announced. In the following ceremonies, it is plainly enacted. Thus, in some parts of Bohemia, the effigy of death is drowned by being thrown into the water at sunset. Then the girls go out into the wood and cut down a young tree with a green crown, hang a doll dressed as a woman on it, deck the whole with green, red and white ribbons, and march in procession with their lito, or summer, into the village, collecting gifts and singing, Death swims in the water, spring comes to visit us, with eggs that are red, with yellow pancakes. We carried death out of the village. We are carrying summer into the village. In many Silesian villages, the figure of death, after being treated with respect, is stripped of its clothes and flung with curses into the water or torn to pieces in a field. Then the young folk repair to a wood, cut down a small fir tree, peel the trunk and deck it with festoons of evergreens, paper roses, painted eggshells, motley bits of cloth, and so forth. The tree thus adorned is called summer or may. Boys carry it from house to house, singing appropriate songs, and begging for presents. Among their songs is the following. 
We have carried death out. We are bringing the dear summer back, the summer and the May, and all the flowers gay. Sometimes they also bring back from the wood a prettily adorned figure, which goes by the name of summer, May, or the bride. In the Polish districts it is called Zjavana, the goddess of spring. At Eisenach, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, young people used to fasten a straw man, representing death, to a wheel, which they trundled to the top of a hill. Then, setting fire to the figure, they allowed it, and the wheel, to roll down the slope. Next they cut a tall fir-tree, tricked it out with ribbons, and set it up in the plain. The men then climbed the tree to fetch down the ribbons. In Upper Lusatia, the figure of death, made of straw and rags, is dressed in a veil furnished by the last bride, and a shirt provided by the house in which the last death took place. Thus arrayed, the figure is stuck on the end of a long pole, and carried at full speed by the tallest and strongest girl, while the rest pelt the effigy with sticks and stones. Whoever hits it will be sure to live through the year. In this way death is carried out of the village, and thrown into the water, or over the boundary of the next village. On their way home, each one breaks a green branch, and carries it gaily with him, till he reaches the village, when he throws it away. Sometimes the young people of the next village, upon whose land the figure has been thrown, run after them and hurl it back, not wishing to have death among them. Hence the two parties occasionally come to blows. In these cases death is represented by the puppet which is thrown away, summer or life, by the branches or trees which are brought back. But sometimes a new potency of life seems to be attributed to the image of death itself, and by a kind of resurrection it becomes the instrument of the general revival. Thus in some parts of Lusatia women alone are concerned in carrying out death, and suffer no male to meddle with it. Attired in mourning, which they wear the whole day, they make a puppet of straw, clothe it in a white shirt, and give it a broom in one hand, and a scythe in the other. Singing songs, and pursued by urchins throwing stones, they carry the puppet to the village boundary, where they tear it in pieces. Then they cut down a fine tree, hang the shirt on it, and carry it home singing. On the Feast of Ascension, the Saxons of Brale, a village of Transylvania, not far from Hermannstadt, observe the ceremony of carrying out death in the following manner. After morning service, all the schoolgirls repair to the house of one of their number, and there dress up the death. This is done by tying a threshed-out sheaf of corn into a rough semblance of a head and body, while the arms are simulated by a broomstick thrust through it horizontally. The figure is dressed in the holiday attire of a young peasant woman, with a red hood, silver brooches, and a profusion of ribbons at the arms and breast. The girls bustle at their work, for soon the bells will be ringing to vespers, and the death must be ready in time to be placed at the open window, that all the people may see it on their way to church. When vespers are over, the longed-for moment has come for the first procession with the death to begin. It is a privilege that belongs to the schoolgirls alone. Two of the older girls seize the figure by the arms and walk in front. All the rest follow two and two. Boys may take no part in the procession, but they troop after it, gazing with open-mouthed admiration at the beautiful death. So the procession goes through all the streets of the village, the girls singing the old hymn that begins... Gott mein Vater, deine Liebe reicht so weit der Himmel ist, to a tune that differs from the ordinary one. When the procession has wound its way through every street, the girls go to another house, and having shut the door against the eager prying crowd of boys who follow at their heels, they strip the death and pass the naked truss of straw out of the window to the boys, who pounce on it, run out of the village with it without singing, and fling the dilapidated effigy into the neighbouring brook. This done, the second scene of the little drama begins. While the boys were carrying away the death out of the village, the girls remained in the house, 
and one of them is now dressed in all the finery which had been worn by the effigy. Thus arrayed, she is led in procession through all the streets to the singing of the same hymn as before. When the procession is over, they all betake themselves to the house of the girl who played the leading part. Here a feast awaits them, from which also the boys are excluded. It is a popular belief that the children may safely begin to eat gooseberries and other fruit after the day on which death has thus been carried out, for death, which up to that time lurked especially in gooseberries, is now destroyed. Further, they may now bathe with impunity out of doors. Very similar is the ceremony which, down to recent years, was observed in some of the German villages of Moravia. Boys and girls met on the afternoon of the first Sunday after Easter, and together fashioned a puppet of straw to represent death. Decked with bright-coloured ribbons and cloths, and fastened to the top of a long pole, the effigy was then borne with singing and clamour to the nearest height, where it was stripped of its gay attire and thrown or rolled down the slope. One of the girls was next dressed in the gourds taken from the effigy of death, and with her at its head the procession moved back to the village. In some villages the practice is to bury the effigy in the place that has the most evil reputation of all the countryside. Others throw it into running water. In the Lusatian ceremony described above, the tree which is brought home after the destruction of the figure of death is plainly equivalent to the trees or branches which, in the preceding customs, were brought back as representatives of summer or life, after death had been thrown away or destroyed. But the transference of the shirt worn by the effigy of death to the tree clearly indicates that the tree is a kind of revivification in a new form of the destroyed effigy. This comes out also in the Transylvanian and Moravian customs. The dressing of a girl in the clothes worn by the death, and the leading her about the village to the same song which has been sung when the death was being carried about, show that she is intended to be a kind of resuscitation of the being whose effigy has just been destroyed. These examples, therefore, suggest that the death whose demolition is represented in these ceremonies cannot be regarded as the purely destructive agent which we understand by death. If the tree which is brought back as an embodiment of the reviving vegetation of spring is clothed in the shirt worn by the death which has just been destroyed, the object certainly cannot be to check and counteract the revival of vegetation it can only be to foster and promote it. Therefore, the being who has just been destroyed, the so-called death, must be supposed to be endowed with a vivifying and quickening influence, which it can communicate to the vegetable and even the animal world. This ascription of a life-giving virtue to the figure of death is put beyond a doubt by the custom, observed in some places, of taking pieces of the straw effigy of death and placing them in the fields to make the crops grow, or in the manger to make the cattle thrive. Thus in Spachendorf, a village of Austrian Silesia, the figure of death, made of straw, brushwood and rags, is carried with wild songs to an open place outside the village, and they are burnt, and while it is burning, a general struggle takes place for the pieces, which are pulled out of the flames with bare hands. Each one who secures a fragment of the effigy ties it to a branch of the largest tree in his garden, or buries it in his field, in the belief that this causes the crops to grow better. In the Tropau district of Austrian Silesia, the straw figure which the boys make on the fourth Sunday in Lent is dressed by the girls in woman's clothes, and hung with ribbons, necklace, and garlands. Attached to a long pole, it is carried out of the village, followed by a troop of young people of both sexes, who alternately frolic, lament, and sing songs. Arrived at its destination, a field outside the village, the figure is stripped of its clothes and ornaments. Then the crowd rushes at it and tears it to bits, scuffling for the fragments. Everyone tries to get a wisp of straw of which the effigy was made, because such a wisp placed in the manger, is believed to make the cattle thrive. Or the straw is put in the hen's nest, 
it being supposed that this prevents the hens from carrying away their eggs, and makes them brood much better. The same attribution of a fertilising power to the figure of death appears in the belief that if the bearers of the figure, after throwing it away, beat cattle with their sticks, this will render the beasts fat or prolific. Perhaps the six had been previously used to beat the death, and so had acquired the fertilising power ascribed to the effigy. We have seen, too, that at Leipzig a straw effigy of death was shown to young wives to make them fruitful. It seems hardly possible to separate from the may-trees the trees or branches which are brought into the village after the destruction of death. The bearers who bring them in profess to be bringing in summer, therefore the trees obviously represent the summer. Indeed, in Silesia they are commonly called the summer or the may and the doll which is sometimes attached to the summer tree is a duplicate representative of the summer, just as the may is sometimes represented at the same time by a may tree and a may lady. Further, the summer trees are adorned like may trees with ribbons and so on. Like may trees, when large, they are planted in the ground and climbed up, and like may trees, when small, they are carried from door to door by boys or girls singing songs and collecting money. And as if to demonstrate the identity of the two sets of customs, the bearers of the summer tree sometimes announce that they are bringing in the summer and the May. The customs, therefore, of bringing in the May and bringing in the summer are essentially the same, and the summer tree is merely another form of the May tree, the only distinction, beside that of name, being in the time at which they are respectively brought in, for while the May-tree is usually fetched in on the 1st of May or at Whitsuntide, the summer-tree is fetched in on the 4th Sunday in Lent. Therefore, if the May-tree is an embodiment of the tree-spirit or spirit of vegetation, the summer-tree must likewise be an embodiment of the tree-spirit or spirit of vegetation. But we have seen that the summer-tree is in some cases a revivification of the effigy of death. It follows, therefore, that in these cases the effigy called death must be an embodiment of the tree-spirit or spirit of vegetation. This inference is confirmed, first, by the vivifying and fertilising influence which the fragments of the effigy of death are believed to exercise, both on vegetable and on animal life. For this influence, as we saw in an earlier part of this work, is supposed to be a special attribute of the tree-spirit. It is confirmed, secondly, by observing that the effigy of death is sometimes decked with leaves or made of twigs, branches, hemp, or a threshed-out sheaf of corn, and that sometimes it is hung on a little tree and so carried about by girls collecting money, just as is done with the may-tree and the may-lady, and with the summer-tree and the doll attached to it. In short, we are driven to regard the expulsion of death and the bringing in of summer as, in some cases at least, merely another form of that death and revival of the spirit of vegetation in spring, which we saw enacted in the killing and resurrection of the wild man. The burial and resurrection of the carnival is probably another way of expressing the same idea. The interment of the representative of the carnival under a dung-heap is natural if he is supposed to possess a quickening and fertilising influence, like that ascribed to the effigy of death. The Estonians, indeed, who carry the straw figure out of the village in the usual way on Shrove Tuesday, do not call it the carnival, but the wood-spirit, Metzik, and they clearly indicate the identity of the effigy with the wood spirit by fixing it to the top of a tree in the wood, where it remains for a year, and is besought almost daily with prayers and offerings to protect the herds, for, like a true wood spirit, the Metzik is a patron of cattle. Sometimes the Metzik is made of sheaves of corn. Thus we may fairly conjecture that the names Carnival, Death and Summer are comparatively late and inadequate expressions for the beings personified or embodied in the customs with which we have been dealing. The very abstractness of the names bespeaks a modern origin, for the personification of times and seasons like the Carnival and Summer, or of an abstract notion like Death, is not primitive. 
but the ceremonies themselves bear the stamp of a dateless antiquity. Therefore we can hardly help supposing that in their origin the ideas which they embodied were of a more simple and concrete order. The notion of a tree, perhaps of a particular kind of tree, for some savages have no word for tree in general, or even of an individual tree, is sufficiently concrete to supply a basis from which, by a gradual process of generalization, the wider idea of a spirit of vegetation might be reached. But this general idea of vegetation would readily be confounded with the season in which it manifests itself, hence the substitution of spring, summer or may for the tree spirit or spirit of vegetation would be easy and natural. Again, the concrete notion of the dying tree or dying vegetation would, by a similar process of generalization, glide into a notion of death in general, so that the practice of carrying out the dying or dead vegetation in spring, as a preliminary to its revival, would in time widen out into an attempt to banish death in general from the village or district. The view that in these spring ceremonies death meant originally the dying or dead vegetation of winter has the high support of W. Manhart, and he confirms it by the analogy of the name death as applied to the spirit of the ripe corn. Commonly the spirit of the ripe corn is conceived not as dead, but as old, and hence it goes by the name of the old man or the old woman but in some places the last sheaf cut at harvest, which is generally believed to be the seat of the corn spirit, is called the dead one. Children are warned against entering the cornfields because death sits in the corn, and in a game played by Saxon children in Transylvania at the maize harvest, death is represented by a child completely covered with maize leaves. 5. Battle of Summer and Winter Sometimes, in the popular customs of the peasantry, the contrast between the dormant powers of vegetation in winter and their awakening vitality in spring takes the form of a dramatic contest between actors who play the parts respectively of winter and summer. Thus, in the towns of Sweden on May Day, two troops of young men on horseback used to meet as if for mortal combat. One of them was led by a representative of winter, clad in furs, who threw snowballs and ice in order to prolong the cold weather. The other troop was commanded by a representative of summer, covered with fresh leaves and flowers. In the sham fight which followed, the party of summer came off victorious, and the ceremony ended with a feast. Again in the region of the Middle Rhine, a representative of summer, clad in ivy, combats a representative of winter, clad in straw or moss, and finally gains a victory over him. The vanquished foe is thrown to the ground and stripped of his casing of straw, which is torn to pieces and scattered about, while the youthful comrades of the two champions sing a song to commemorate the defeat of winter by summer. Afterwards they carry about a summer garland or branch, and collect gifts of eggs and bacon from house to house. Sometimes the champion, who acts the part of summer, is dressed in leaves and flowers, and wears a chaplet of flowers on his head. In the Palatinate this mimic conflict takes place on the fourth Sunday in Lent. All over Bavaria, the same drama used to be acted on the same day, and it was still kept up in some places down to the middle of the 19th century or later. While summer appeared clad all in green, decked with fluttering ribbons, and carrying a branch in blossom, or a little tree hung with apples and pears, winter was muffled up in a cap and mantle of fur, and bore in his hand a snow-shovel or a flail accompanied by their respective retinues dressed in corresponding attire they went through all the streets of the village halting before the houses and singing staves of old songs for which they received presents of bread eggs and fruit finally after a short struggle winter was beaten by summer and ducked in the village well or driven out of the village with shouts and laughter into the forest at Gerpfritz in Lower Austria, 
two men personating summer and winter used to go from house to house on Shrove Tuesday, and were everywhere welcomed by the children with great delight. The representative of summer was clad in white and bore a sickle. His comrade, who played the part of winter, had a fur cap on his head, his arms and legs were swathed in straw, and he carried a flail. In every house they sang verses alternately. At Drömling in Brunswick, down to the present day, the contest between summer and winter is acted every year at Whitsuntide by a troop of boys and a troop of girls. The boys rush singing, shouting and ringing bells from house to house to drive winter away. After them come the girls, singing softly and led by a May bride, all in bright dresses and decked with flowers and garlands to represent the genial advent of spring. Formerly the part of winter was played by a straw man, which the boys carried with them. Now it is acted by a real man in disguise. Among the central Eskimos of North America, the contest between representatives of summer and winter, which in Europe has long degenerated into a mere dramatic performance, is still kept up as a magical ceremony, of which the avowed intention is to influence the weather. In autumn, when storms announce the approach of the dismal Arctic winter, the Eskimos divide themselves into two parties, called respectively the Ptarmigans and the Ducks, the Ptarmigans comprising all persons born in winter, and the Ducks all persons born in summer. A long rope of sealskin is then stretched out, and each party laying hold of one end of it seeks by tugging with might and main to drag the other party over to its side. If the ptarmigans get the worst of it, then summer has won the game, and fine weather may be expected to prevail through the winter. 6. Death and Resurrection of Kostrubonka In Russia, funeral ceremonies, like those of burying the carnival and carrying out death, are celebrated under the names, not of death or the carnival, but of certain mythic figures, Kostrubonka, Kostroma, Kupala, Lada, and Yarila. These Russian ceremonies are observed both in spring and at midsummer. Thus, in Little Russia, it used to be the custom at Eastertide to celebrate the funeral of a being called Kostrubonka, the deity of the spring. A circle was formed of singers who moved slowly around a girl who lay on the ground as if dead, and as they went they sang, Dead, dead is our Kostrubonka, dead, dead is our dear one. Until the girl suddenly sprang up, on which the chorus joyfully exclaimed, Come to life, come to life, has our Kostrubonka, come to life, come to life, has our dear one. On the eve of St. John, Midsummer Eve, a figure of Kupala is made of straw and is dressed in women's clothes with a necklace and a floral crown. Then a tree is felled, and after being decked with ribbons, is set up on some chosen spot. Near this tree, to which they give the name of Marena, winter or death, the straw figure is placed, together with a table, on which stand spirits and viands. Afterwards a bonfire is lit, and the young men and maidens jump over it in couples, carrying the figure with them. On the next day they strip the tree and the figure of their ornaments and throw them both into a stream. On St. Peter's Day, the 29th of June, or on the following Sunday, the funeral of Kostroma, or of Lada, or of Yarila, is celebrated in Russia. In the governments of Penza and Simbirsk, the funeral used to be represented as follows. A bonfire was kindled on the 28th of June, and on the next day the maidens chose one of their number to play the part of Kostroma. Her companions saluted her with deep obeisances, placed her on a board, and carried her to the bank of a stream. There they bathed her in the water, while the oldest girl made a basket of lime-tree bark and beat it like a drum. Then they returned to the village, and ended the day with processions, games, and dances. In the Murom district, Kostroma was represented by a straw figure dressed in women's clothes and flowers. This was laid in a trough and carried with song to the bank of a lake or river. 
Here the crowd divided into two sides, on which the one attacked and the other defended the figure. At last the assailants gained the day, stripped the figure of its dress and ornaments, tore it in pieces, trod the straw of which it was made underfoot, and flung it into the stream, while the defenders of the figure hid their faces in their hands, and pretended to bewail the death of Kostroma. In the district of Kostroma, the burial of Yarilla was celebrated on the twenty-ninth or thirtieth of June. The people chose an old man, and gave him a small coffin containing a Priapus-like figure representing Yarilla. This he carried out of the town, followed by women chanting dirges and expressing by their gestures grief and despair. In the open fields a grave was dug, and into it the figure was lowered amid weeping and wailing, after which games and dances were begun, calling to mind the funeral games celebrated in old times by the pagan Slavonians. In Little Russia the figure of Yarila was laid in a coffin and carried through the streets after sunset, surrounded by drunken women, who kept repeating mournfully, He is dead! He is dead! The men lifted and shook the figure as if they were trying to recall the dead man to life. Then they said to the women, Women, weep not! I know what is sweeter than honey! But the women continued to lament and chant, as they do at funerals. Of what was he guilty? He was so good! He will arise no more! Oh, how shall we part from thee? What is life without thee? Arise, if only for a brief hour! But he rises not! He rises not! At last the Yarila was buried in a grave. 7. Death and Revival of Vegetation These Russian customs are plainly of the same nature as those which in Austria and Germany are known as carrying out death. Therefore, if the interpretation here adopted of the latter is right, the Russian Kostrubonka, Yarila, and the rest must also have been originally embodiments of the spirit of vegetation, and their death must have been regarded as a necessary preliminary to their revival. The revival as a sequel to the death is enacted in the first of the ceremonies described, the death and resurrection of Kostrubonka. The reason why in some of these Russian ceremonies the death of the spirit of vegetation is celebrated at midsummer may be that the decline of summer is dated from midsummer day, after which the days begin to shorten, and the sun sets out on his downward journey, to the darksome hollows where the frosts of winter lie. Such a turning point of the year, when vegetation might be thought to share the incipient, though still almost imperceptible decay of summer, might very well be chosen by primitive man as a fit moment for resorting to those magic rites by which he hopes to stay the decline or at least to ensure the revival of plant life. But while the death of vegetation appears to have been represented in all, and its revival in some, of these spring and midsummer ceremonies, there are features in some of them which can hardly be explained on this hypothesis alone. The solemn funeral, the lamentations, and the mourning attire, which often characterise these rites, are indeed appropriate at the death of the beneficent spirit of vegetation. But what shall we say of the glee with which the effigy is often carried out, of the sticks and stones with which it is assailed, and the taunts and curses which are hurled at it? What shall we say of the dread of the effigy evinced by the haste with which the bearers scamper home as soon as they have thrown it away, and by the belief that someone must soon die in any house into which it has looked. This dread might perhaps be explained by a belief that there is a certain infectiousness in the dead spirit of vegetation which renders its approach dangerous. But this explanation, besides being rather strained, does not cover the rejoicings which often attend the carrying out of death. We must therefore recognise two distinct and seemingly opposite features in these ceremonies. On the one hand, sorrow for the death, and affection and respect for the dead. On the other hand, fear and hatred of the dead, and rejoicings at his death. How the former of these features is to be explained, I have attempted to show. 
how the latter came to be so closely associated with the former is a question which I shall try to answer in the sequel. 8. Analogous Rites in India In the Kanagra district of India there is a custom observed by young girls in spring which closely resembles some of the European spring ceremonies just described. It is called the Rali Kamela, or Fair of Rali, the Rali being a small painted earthen image of Shiva or Parvati. The custom is in vogue all over the Kanagra district, and its celebration, which is entirely confined to young girls, lasts through most of Chet, March to April, up to the Sankrant of Baisakh, April. On a morning in March, all the young girls of the village take small baskets of dub grass and flowers to an appointed place, where they throw them in a heap. Round this heap they stand in a circle and sing. This goes on every day for ten days, till the heap of grass and flowers has reached a fair height. Then they cut in the jungle two branches, each with three prongs at one end, and place them, prongs downwards, over the heap of flowers, so as to make two tripods or pyramids. On the single uppermost points of these branches they get an image-maker to construct two clay images, one to represent Shiva and the other Parvati. The girls then divide themselves into two parties, one for Shiva and one for Parvati, and marry the images in the usual way, leaving out no part of the ceremony. After the marriage they have a feast, the cost of which is defrayed by contributions solicited from their parents. Then at the next Sankrant, by Sach, they all go together to the riverside, throw the images into a deep pool, and weep over the place, as though they were performing funeral obsequies. The boys of the neighbourhood often tease them by diving after the images, bringing them up and waving them about while the girls are crying over them. The object of the fair is said to be to secure a good husband. That in this Indian ceremony the deities Shiva and Parvati are conceived as spirits of vegetation seems to be proved by the placing of their images on branches over a heap of grass and flowers. Here, as often in European folk customs, the divinities of vegetation are represented in duplicate by plants and by puppets. The marriages of these Indian deities in spring corresponds to the European ceremonies in which the marriage of the vernal spirits of vegetation is represented by the King and Queen of May, the May Bride, Bridegroom of the May, and so forth. The throwing of the images into the water and the mourning for them are the equivalents of the European customs of throwing the dead spirit of vegetation under the name of death, Yarila, Kostroma, and the rest, into water and lamenting over it. Again in India, as often in Europe, the rite is performed exclusively by females. The notion that the ceremony helps to procure husbands for the girls can be explained by the quickening and fertilising influence which the spirit of vegetation is believed to exert upon the life of man as well as of plants. 9. The Magic Spring The general explanation which we have been led to adopt of these and many similar ceremonies is that they are, or were in their origin, magical rites intended to ensure the revival of nature in spring. The means by which they were supposed to effect this end were imitation and sympathy. Led astray by his ignorance of the true causes of things, primitive man believed that in order to produce the great phenomena of nature on which his life depended, he had only to imitate them, and that immediately, by a secret sympathy or mystic influence, the little drama which he acted in forest glade or mountain dell, on desert plain or windswept shore, would be taken up and repeated by mightier actors on a vaster stage. He fancied that by masquerading in leaves and flowers he helped the bare earth to clothe herself with verdure, and that by playing the death and burial of winter he drove that gloomy season away, and made smooth the path for the footsteps of returning spring. If we find it hard to throw ourselves even in fancy into a mental condition in which such things seem possible, 
we can more easily picture to ourselves the anxiety which the savage, when he first began to lift his thoughts above the satisfaction of his merely animal wants, and to meditate on the causes of things, may have felt as to the continued operation of what we now call the laws of nature. To us, familiar as we are with the conception of the uniformity and regularity with which the great cosmic phenomena succeed each other, there seems little ground for apprehension that the causes which produce these effects will cease to operate, or at least within the near future. But this confidence in the stability of nature is bred only by the experience which comes of wide observation and long tradition and the savage, with his narrow sphere of observation, and his short-lived tradition, lacks the very elements of that experience which alone could set his mind at rest in face of the ever-changing and often menacing aspects of nature. No wonder, therefore, that he is thrown into a panic by an eclipse, and thinks that the sun or the moon would surely perish if he did not raise a clamour and shoot his puny shafts into the air, to defend the luminaries from the monster who threatens to devour them. No wonder he is terrified when, in the darkness of night, a streak of sky is suddenly illumined by the flash of a meteor, or the whole expanse of the celestial arch glows with the fitful light of the northern streamers. Even phenomena which recur at fixed and uniform intervals may be viewed by him with apprehension, before he has come to recognise the orderliness of their recurrence. The speed or slowness of his recognition of such periodic or cyclic changes in nature will depend largely on the length of the particular cycle. The cycle, for example, of day and night is everywhere except in the polar regions so short and hence so frequent that men probably soon ceased to discompose themselves seriously as to the chances of its failing to recur, though the ancient Egyptians, as we have seen, daily wrought enchantments to bring back to the east in the morning the fiery orb which had sunk at evening in the crimson west. But it was far otherwise with the annual cycle of the seasons. To any man a year is a considerable period, seeing that the number of our years is but few at the best. To the primitive savage, with his short memory and imperfect means of marking the flight of time, a year may well have been so long that he failed to recognise it as a cycle at all, and watched the changing aspects of earth and heaven with a perpetual wonder, alternately delighted and alarmed, elated and cast down, according as the vicissitudes of light and heat, of plant and animal life, ministered to his comfort, or threatened his existence. In autumn, when the withered leaves were whirled about the forest by the nipping blast, and he looked up at the bare boughs, could he feel sure that they would ever be green again? As day by day the sun sank lower and lower in the sky, could he be certain that the luminary would ever retrace his heavenly road? Even the waning moon, whose pale sickle rose thinner and thinner every night over the rim of the eastern horizon, may have excited in his mind a fear lest, when it had wholly vanished, there should be moons no more. These, and a thousand such misgivings, may have thronged the fancy and troubled the peace of the man who first began to reflect on the mysteries of the world he lived in, and to take thought for a more distant future than the morrow. It was natural, therefore, that with such thoughts and fears he should have done all that in him lay to bring back the faded blossom to the bough, to swing the low sun of winter up to his old place in the summer sky, and to restore its orbed fullness to the silver lamp of the waning moon. We may smile at his vain endeavours if we please, but it was only by making a long series of experiments, of which some were almost inevitably doomed to failure, that man learnt from experience the futility of some of his attempted methods, and the fruitfulness of others. After all, magical ceremonies are nothing but experiments which have failed, and which continue to be repeated merely because, for reasons which have already been indicated, the operator is unaware of their failure. 
with the advance of knowledge, these ceremonies either cease to be performed altogether, or are kept up from force of habit, long after the intention with which they were instituted has been forgotten. Thus fallen from their high estate, no longer regarded as solemn rites on the punctual performance of which the welfare and even the life of the community depend, they sink gradually to the level of simple pageants, mummeries and pastimes, till in the final stage of degeneration they are wholly abandoned by older people, and, from having once been the most serious occupation of the sage, become at last the idle sport of children. It is in this final stage of decay that most of the old magical rites of our European forefathers linger on at the present day, and even from this their last retreat, they are fast being swept away by the rising tide of those multitudinous forces, moral, intellectual and social, which are bearing mankind onward to a new and unknown goal. We may feel some natural regret at the disappearance of quaint customs and picturesque ceremonies, which have preserved to an age often deemed dull and prosaic something of the flavour and freshness of the olden time, some breath of the springtime of the world. Yet our regret will be lessened when we remember that these pretty pageants, these now innocent diversions, had their origin in ignorance and superstition that if they are a record of human endeavour, they are also a monument of fruitless ingenuity, of wasted labour, and of blighted hopes, and that for all their gay trappings, their flowers, their ribbons, and their music, they partake far more of tragedy than of farce. The interpretation which, following in the footsteps of W. Manhart, I have attempted to give of these ceremonies, has been not a little confirmed by the discovery, made since this book was first written, that the natives of Central Australia regularly practice magical ceremonies for the purpose of awakening the dormant energies of nature at the approach of what may be called the Australian Spring. Nowhere, apparently, are the alternations of the seasons more sudden, and the contrasts between them more striking than in the deserts of Central Australia, where, at the end of a long period of drought, the sandy and stony wilderness, over which the silence and desolation of death appear to brood, is suddenly, after a few days of torrential rain, transformed into a landscape smiling with verdure, and peopled with teeming multitudes of insects and lizards, of frogs and birds. The marvellous change which passes over the face of nature at such times has been compared even by European observers to the effect of magic. No wonder, then, that the savage should regard it as such in very deed. Now, it is just when there is promise of the approach of a good season that the natives of Central Australia are wont especially to perform those magical ceremonies of which the avowed intention is to multiply the plants and animals they use as food. These ceremonies, therefore, present a close analogy to the spring customs of our European peasantry, not only in the time of their celebration, but also in their aim. For we can hardly doubt that in instituting rites designed to assist the revival of plant life in spring, our primitive forefathers were moved, not by any sentimental wish to smell at early violets, or pluck the wraith primrose, or watch yellow daffodils dancing in the breeze, but by the very practical consideration, certainly not formulated in abstract terms, that the life of man is inextricably bound up with that of plants, and that if they were to perish, he could not survive. And, as the faith of the Australian savage in the efficacy of his magic rites is confirmed by observing that their performance is invariably followed, sooner or later, by that increase of vegetable and animal life which it is their object to produce, so we may suppose it was with the European savages in the olden time. The sight of the fresh green in brake and thicket, of vernal flowers blowing on mossy banks, of swallows arriving from the south, and of the sun mounting daily higher in the sky, would be welcomed by them as so many visible signs that their enchantments were indeed taking effect. 
and would inspire them with a cheerful confidence that all was well with a world which they could thus mould to suit their wishes. Only in autumn days, as the summer slowly faded, would their confidence again be dashed by doubts and misgivings at symptoms of decay, which told how vain were all their efforts to stave off for ever the approach of winter and of death. End of chapter 28